Hey, how you doing? I'm Steve Fallon. Thanks for listening. This time, let's find out what it's like being freelance for podcast producer Matt Hill. My dad's been self-employed for most of my life as a carpenter. I've always kind of known that part of the way he gets work is to just be really nice to his clients and make sure that he hoovers up the sawdust, which in his line of work, a lot of people don't do. And if you can mark yourself out as just the easy person to work with, then you're likely to get another call. I've just tried to take a leaf out of that book, really, and just make sure that the relationships I'm building with people are based on honesty and trust and I think just being as friendly as you possibly can. The more people you meet, the more chance you have of working with them in the future. So just keep meeting people and it will all work out. Yeah, so there is Matt, freelance audio producer, podcast producer, runs his own company, Rethink Audio, and you'll hear his story very soon indeed. By the way, Thanks so much for all of the feedback on last week's episode. Many of you getting in touch with Annie about her story. It's really nice when you do that because, you know, a lot of the guests come on here and they're a little bit, I don't know, maybe it's the first time they've spoken about what they do. They've probably not been on a podcast, maybe not even blogged about it or whatever. And yeah, then they open up and they don't know whether it'll make a difference or people will care. And so when you get in touch with them, uh, that's really nice. Remember, for each of our guests, we put links through to their websites and to their social media links as well. So you can find them, get in touch with them. All of that is at beingfreelance.com. That's where you'll find over 100 episodes of me chatting to different freelancers about their stories. And, of course, you can watch my story unfurl as well. Yes, watch it, because I vlog every single day. <laughs> and then, Yeah, I know, I'm an idiot. I, I film myself every day, basically, and then at the end of the week compile it all together, what I'm going through, what I'm learning, the mistakes, the experiences... And yes, thank you so much if you've hit subscribe and left a comment there. If you haven't, please go watch. You can find it on YouTube, but there's links at beingfreelance.com. Right now, though, let's crack on and say hi to freelance podcast producer and the man behind Rethink Audio, Matt Hill. Hey, Matt. Hi, Steve. Thanks for doing this. I hear your name on so many podcasts, but never your voice. So really, I, so... I forced them to put my name on the end. It's, it's part of the contract. That was going to be one of my questions later on. <laughs> There's no contracts. <laughs> but I'm intrigued. How did you get started being freelance? Yeah, my my freelance career predates my time in audio, actually. I was originally in a theatre company straight out of university. We set up a, a small theatre company and we toured around the country for a few years until we all got sick of each other. Um, and then I retrained in radio. But it, it kind of gave me a good grounding in... Just even the real basics of setting up a bank account for a company and applying for grants and sort of expenses and all that kind of gubbins. And so when I kind of made the plunge into radio and did a little bit of retraining and did an MA, it was much easier to to kind of feel like freelancing was a good idea. Of course, that's not what I did. What I actually did was I applied for lots of jobs and ended up working at Channel 4 Radio. Well, which which of course doesn't exist and no one's ever heard of because it lasted about six months. And it was kind of after that that I went, well, I'm not going to try getting a permanent position anywhere ever again because this this industry is pretty, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not. There's nothing permanent about it, I would say. So I kind of decided at that point that if I was ever going to survive in the industry, I should probably have more than one employer. Smart. So when would that have been, just to put this in perspective? Channel 4 Radio was 2008 to 2008 
<laughs> That's its gravestone right there. So you've worked for six months on something that never aired. So how did you go out then and get your freelance clients? How did you prove yourself? Well, what was glorious about those six months was that I was tasked with listening to as much international content and non-BBC speech programming as I could and report back anything that we could buy in and license to kind of fill the holes in the schedule that couldn't be supplied by new Channel 4 programming by independents. So I would like to think I was one of the early listeners to Radio Lab and CBC radio programmes like Wiretap. I'd share these with the office to give them a sense of what was out there. And so I had a really good grounding of international radio, sort of non-BBC intelligent speech radio, and also the kind of beginnings of the kind of podcasts that have now kind of grown out. So things like Alex Bloomberg on Planet Money and This American Life, you know, I was listening to his, his stuff and now famously at Gimlet and that listening experience allowed me to have a bit of a broader idea of what a podcast could be and, and crucially how to make one, which at the time, not a lot of audio producers I knew could do such a thing. So I thought that if I couldn't get another gig with a network, it would be a good time to try and branch out and try and do podcasting, do that kind of quality of work, but do it in a, a format that didn't involve having to get it past a commissioner. So although I was kind of pitching things through production companies for Radio 1 and 1 Extra and things like that, as a lot of budding producers would do, I I knew that that wasn't necessarily going to pay the rent. You know, you're, you're likely to get one or two of those documentaries made a year. So I needed to find other ways of making money. And from that, I kind of stumbled into the sights of a, of a producer called Francesca Panetta, who was working at The Guardian but uh, wanted to make an app based on her own podcast called The Hackney Podcast. And so I ended up working with her to build an app which explored Hackney, a sort of audio tour of Hackney, using the sounds and interviews that she'd recorded for that podcast. Wow. OK, so... <laughs> it's quite a lot there, sorry. I... So that gave you an entry into The Guardian? Yeah. Well, The Guardian had, had a massive hit, like maybe two or three years prior to this, with uh, the Ricky Gervais show. Um wow. But they'd also, off the back of that, launched a whole bunch of like shows based on like different desks, journalist desks, so media and sport and uh, politics and uh, science, most of which are still going today. And it was an opportunity for them at The Guardian to, to train journalists in broadcast in a, quite a cheap, effective way. So when I kind of ended up working on just doing covering shifts, holiday shifts at The Guardian on various magazine shows, you got to know the journalists and you... You kind of slowly kind of, I suppose, ingratiate your way into the hub. And I ended up working very quietly on their Media Talk podcast. And I say quietly because there was no contract. There was no formal agreement. I just kind of got handed it one week and it, was, it wasn't really taken off me for, for quite a few after that. So the, the Guardian were very much at the forefront of it. And a lot of newspapers had to play catch up with them. So would you have been emailing? Like, how did you get in front of these people in the first place? Were you, was it like sending out loads of emails, getting rejected, or was it hanging around the right people and trying to make connections? 
Well, the the two pronged attack, which was like after Channel Four, I basically grabbed the emails of all the indies that we'd been contacting, and I'd done a, a, a probably re- relatively amateur reply all to everyone to say if you're looking for a <laughs> if you're looking for a recent graduate with some ideas to come and pitch some ideas to you, can we meet for a coffee? So I'd met a lot of independent companies like that, and then the project with Fran Panetta, which got me into the Guardian, that. You know, that was basically, we did it for free for a bit and then we got an Arts Council grant. But there was just a point where I, you know, I hadn't got any work coming in. And I just asked Fran quite honestly, you know, is there any any possible way I could get a shift or two at The Guardian because I, I really can't pay the rent this way? And uh, she was very kind and, and sort of uh, just gave me a kind of, you know, showed me the ropes and the studio and stuff and introduced me to a couple of other producers. And it, it just allowed me enough options that when when they needed a holiday shift covering at least I knew the kit and I knew a couple of the staff and it just meant that I got a call when they needed someone to come in and I suppose that those early days when you don't have any contacts the idea that you're available particularly during the holidays to cover you know that's really important to people and you know then it's about kind of emailing occasionally and just making sure that your name is at the front of their mind because you know they might meet a hundred people like you and it's just about I suppose being the last one to email <laughs> so that so that you you know oh we'll give that one to Matt or whoever you know just again time frame wise when were you getting your feet in and being the last one to always email at the Guardian oh well that's that's sort of around 2010 it wasn't too long after the channel 4 so that ended in December and uh, in 2009 that was my kind of year of trying to crack the BBC in terms of pitching documentaries through different companies and I'd come up with all sorts of ideas which failed to meet the cut but I got a couple through uh, an independent which just gave me a couple more credentials. If you do stuff for the BBC it's, it's seen as a stamp of quality but once I'd got those credits I didn't necessarily feel the need to keep going back to the BBC unless I had a you know, really strong idea so I kind of I made the decision only a couple of years after being at The Guardian not to really pitch the BBC anymore and just to focus on trying to find other avenues for audio, which um, some were presented to me and some I pitched, and that really helped, I think, in terms of giving me a bit more focus. So talk us through how your sort of career evolved from there. So <laughs> tell me the rest of your story, Matt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I introduced you as Matt from Rethink Audio, but at the moment you're a sort of ad hoc freelancer at The Guardian, so there, there feels like quite a big gap in these eight years. Sure, I mean, what happened, in a way, my hand was forced in a way, and, and some of it was by design. So, as I say, I ended up on this show called Media Talk, and the purpose of that show was to kind of go through the week's media news for a media-savvy audience. You know, The Guardian had the Media Guardian brand, and it was like a, every Monday in the paper and had its own mini-site online. And so the podcast was part of that. And so you knew that everyone listening was interested in the media because they worked in it. And as such, the people we'd invite onto the show and the people I got to know were from other publishers. What ended up happening, and this is the kind of like by accident part, is that I ended up working on a show which was a perfect showcase for what podcasts can be and do. So we'd invite the editor of Broadcast Magazine on to talk about the week's news. And then after the recording, she would take me to one side and say, are you freelance? Would you mind coming and doing something like this for just the TV industry for us? 
And so that was my first proper gig outside The Guardian was I, I went off and did a, a programme for broadcast magazine called Talking TV, which is still going now. And that just started getting me thinking that the best way to show people how simple it is to podcast and so cheap to produce as well, in a way, compared to video where everyone was talking about at the time, was to basically just invite them onto a show. So that's what I ended up doing. Like, you know, I, we got shows with Vice that way. We got shows with Prospect Magazine. By inviting them onto Media Talk and then subsequently Media Podcast, it became a way of meeting clients, showcasing what we did, having a product that they could hear without having to then spend any money or really do anything other than, you know, come and see how it was all done. I don't know when there was a conscious decision to start inviting people who I'd like to do podcasts for, but it kind of, it must have happened about three years ago, three or four years ago. And since then, and I'm not saying it's the only way I've done it, but um, it's been a great Trojan horse into having a wider conversation. And I think a lot of the time with when you're pitching to a commissioner, whether you're pitching to a client or someone, I think there's very much a feeling that you need to make it feel like it was their idea all along. Um <laughs> And I think part of that soft, softly, softly approach is to be able to invite them on under different auspices, really, and then let them slowly come to the idea themselves. It's one thing, though, to invite them, isn't it? And it's one thing to meet them, but to to gain their attention, um, you know, like it's quite a relationship being built there. Like people might think that the relationship is between the guest and the presenter of those shows. And obviously you're there making the most of that opportunity. Yes, I suppose so. I mean, my the job of a producer really is to be the glue that sticks it all together. And I think that's as, as much a social thing as it is a practical editing thing. So a lot of my time is often spent making sure there's water in the, the recording room or making sure that everyone's well briefed or having a quick phone chat with everyone beforehand. So it, there's a lot of contact and a lot of just making things as easy as possible for people. And I think like my, my dad's been self-employed for most of my life as a carpenter in the Midlands. I've always kind of known that part of the way he gets work as a sole trader is to just be really nice to his clients and make sure that he hoovers up the sawdust. He makes sure that when they get home, it's it's as pristine as it was when they left, which, you know, in his line of work, a lot of people don't do. And if you can mark yourself out as just the easy person to work with, then you're likely to get another call the next day or the next week or whenever it happens. So I've just tried to take a leaf out of that book, really, and just make sure that the relationships I'm building with people are based on honesty and trust and I think just being as friendly as you possibly can yeah and when did you go then from being freelance producer Matt to being rethink audio I really procrastinated over that for a a couple of years really because I was I was doing a lot of work and I was doing it myself and there just came a time when I couldn't quite fit it in the week which is a glorious privileged position to be in and I wanted to bring in other people. I, you know, I always like working with other people and I've ended up in an industry where you can spend a lot of time on your own editing things. So the the opportunity to work with other people was really, uh, you know, was, was kind of lacking for a while. And I just felt if I could bring in other freelancers to work with and to help them grow as producers and to, I suppose, try and, you know, create a little cabal of freelancers that I've respected and wanted to work with that we could, I suppose, create a little 
podcast production company. Uh, and the other thing that kind of made that more pressing was that me and my wife started a family and therefore we needed to make sure that I could, you know, take time off, maybe work less and as such still have the contacts and the clients happy and that everything was still as reliable as before. So having people to step in to my shoes and maintain that quality was really important to me. And so it was really about two years ago that I started using that kind of Rethink Audio brand and setting up as a limited company and working more with freelancers. And and once you do that, then it becomes easier to start accepting more work. So I started saying yes to a lot more things because I knew that I had the team around me, all as well freelancers, that could do that work to the same standard as, uh, as I'd expect. So again, sort of no grand plan, just necessity kind of it, it came out of that. And then and then once you get a feel for it, it, it becomes really, I suppose, second nature. Yeah. And it must feel great when you know that those freelancers that you've you know found yourself working with are going to do the same quality job that you would do. Yeah. But crucially, like different, a different job as well. And I really enjoy that is that you know, you have a one way of doing things. And it's, the, and for me personally, you know, I, it's not that I don't have more than one idea, but like, I have a feel for how a podcast should be. And that's how I want it to be. But I'm always constantly surprised by the different editorial decisions people make. And I'm always delighted by how they make me feel in terms of like, it's just a complete new way of working. And so the kind of freelancers I'm trying to bring on board to work with are, you know, it's, it's important to me that they're not the same as me as well that we're kind of broadening out our offering and that we can do different types of work and you know to, to give you a good example having kind of acquired some contacts at Vice you know I, I did a pilot for them uh, uh, which was all right we did a few episodes but it didn't feel very vicey and then I brought in a freelancer called Sam Bonham who is a younger more kind of I suppose clued into Vice culture than I am and he really took it to a new place and it sounds great. And there are subjects that I wouldn't cover and I necessarily wouldn't feel comfortable covering, but they justify it and they do it really well. So I, you know, they bring something else to it. And I, I that's a, a whole new dimension to what I do now, which I, I really enjoy is just learning off other people. I guess sort of creating that company structure then creates other, I don't know, issues. Like one might be that, you know, you got into this for the love of creativity, but suddenly you might just be managing other people doing the projects. Another one might be that you could fall into the trap of just charging the same amount that you would have charged for your own time and not actually factoring on profit or, you know, things going wrong and stuff like that. Did did you find that? Yeah, I mean, both those things ring true. I think on the money side, I didn't necessarily have to increase the rates, although in in new commissions I do but like in terms of the established ones with the with the people I've been working with for years it was more about efficiency really that if I had someone available who could edit for me then they might be able to squeeze in two or three edits in a day where once if I was doing a recording and edit that would take up a whole day so if you've got someone whose just job is solely to edit for a day they're going to squeeze more into that time than I would if I was running around and trying to edit so that created some efficiencies. On the management side, I've been really painfully aware of falling into that trap. And particularly because there's a long history of 
radio independent companies that start off in their bedroom, you know, in a bedroom, and then they become a company with people and then end up shrinking back down to one person in a house again. So you don't want to end up becoming a manager for so long that you forget how to do your job and stuff. So I very much keep, I still make a lot of the stuff that we produce or I I still have a hand in it. I try and work with people who are relatively self-sufficient. So I I enjoy, I love the training aspect and that's, I find that as a slightly different tool set than, than the management side. But if I can squeeze all my accounts into one day a month, I'm a very happy man. And I think in terms of the, kind of practicality of it I think it's more a question of when you are making things still that they're the things you really want to make and that you ask freelancers who welcome the work to do the stuff that you would prefer to pass on to other people I suppose so that really you're not you're getting the best of all worlds you're making things you really want to make and um, you're managing great people to make other great content. Mm. Now, I guess within this story so far, of course, you're still producing things for brands mm. or media companies. But actually, from what I can see and have heard, of course, from Rethink Audio, you've started making your own podcasts, as in they're not linked to any particular brand, right? Yeah, I think that's one of the, the crowning uh, sort of or defining aspects of podcasting really is it's an independent media so it's great for clients because it's a low barrier to entry they don't they don't have to really pay a large amount of money to to set up but for me personally it's been a real opportunity to take those shows which you know I was they're not the same shows but when I would pitch something to Radio 1 or or Radio 4 or 5 Live I kind of knew in my heart that there wasn't really a place for it on the schedule there's only limited bandwidth and they they can't dedicate it to a whole new ideas they have to stay you know they have to keep people tuned in all day or that's the that's the intention and so the idea of creating shows which you know had a loyal audience that you knew were there but you could do them through your own means was always the dream and so from the very start we I did a one of the very first things I did was using some of my old contacts in theatre I um, set up a podcast I suppose it was a network um, which did drama and poetry and, and spoken word. That is actually one of the things that got me noticed was that I we got a Sony nomination for that. I think we're one of the only ones to have ever got a nomination for a drama that's outside the BBC. And since then, you know, we've done shows about true storytelling and the start of the moth, which again came from listening to things uh, through Channel 4 Radio. And then later, through meeting Ollie Mann, who presents the media podcast um we started making a show together about four years ago called the mod man which is a uh, a magazine program which we both agreed we'd love to have heard on the radio at any point in our lives but haven't and so we decided to go about trying to make it and the beauty of a magazine show is that you can split it into parts so there's different features every week and you've got these very natural ad breaks so we knew that if we did try and find advertising that we had these quite natural places to put it and that because it's loosely based on the idea of a kind of a a GQ or that kind of magazine that advertisers would get the kind of audience we were reaching which I think is easier sometimes than trying to sell stats so yeah so we've had some success with that which is which I'm really happy with I should say actually that this all started the independent stuff really took off when we took the media podcast independent and um, and that was just a real 
wake up that actually there was money to be you know sort of a kind of combination of listener supported programming as in like kickstarters or patreons or just donations through the website and actual advertising could actually sustain a podcast because they're quite low they they operate on quite low budgets depending on the production you've got to do but it's you know it's entirely possible to to fund a podcast through listeners and advertisers as well it's awesome we'll put links at being freelance.com uh, through to these of course and for, for that matter we had Ollie Mann as a guest a couple of years ago oh yes uh, yeah probably just as you were starting that I think or on the second series so yeah I'll put a link to Ollie's episode as well so for media podcasts you, you just mentioned there just quickly so that was with The Guardian did they just decide to stop making it and you went oh hang on a sec maybe we could make this was that it? yeah quite reasonably the guardian said well it's it, it's not got the figures of football weekly in fact i think it had probably one percent of the figures of football weekly um and so they uh, decided they wanted to drop it from their portfolio and i just i suppose rather cheekily requested that we be allowed to take it elsewhere because i think we we knew that there was because you had a, a niche audience you know no one else was going to listen to a media podcast apart from media professionals that we could sell it to a sponsor because there are people who are just media focused companies that that would just want to reach those people and so that's what we did and I think partly I mean it was a kickstarter that got that thing going and enough of the listeners came with us to our new home to make it worthwhile but that just gave me a, a really good sense of you know just the idea that just because a podcast is niche and may even have quite a small audience um, if it's reaching audiences that are hard to reach then actually it can be quite valuable mm. as all of this has gone on and you've kind of like built up your reputation this links back to what i said right at the beginning is the fact that you have your name frequently i don't know if it's always mentioned at the end of a podcast like they would actually say the producer was Matt Hill or Matt Hill from Rethink Audio. Was that a thing that you consciously pushed for or was it just something that happened from, I don't know, a hang up of the way BBC does programmes where they mention who the producer is? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, you know, I took advantage of the radio convention and um, and also, crucially, Steve, you've got to remember, I'm writing the scripts a lot of the time. So, <laughs> so not to get all Anchorman on it, but you know there is a certain amount of if they see it written down um and they don't object they will say it <laughs> and i think it is good to have that kind of brand recognition when I, when i started putting the rethink audio part on the end and similarly for when sam's doing voice or chica's doing talking tv or something being able to put the rethink audio there just helps i think create I suppose it's optics, isn't it? It's you're more than just one person making a show. It feels like there's a team of you. And I think that's good for good for business to kind of feel like you're part of a quality organisation. Yeah. So everything's going grand for you and you choose to launch the British Podcast Awards, wasn't it? Yeah, me and Matt Deegan uh, set up the British Podcast Awards last year, which went pretty well. We were very happy with it. It kind of exceeded our expectations in terms of profile, which is, you know, it wasn't a given. And you could argue that it's the kind of ceremony that could have happened five, six years ago. But it seems like now is the time that people are happy to talk about podcasts. You know, we had a little discussion on the Today programme, the day of the awards, about the rise of podcasting in Britain and, and uh, the rest of the world. And it 
when the Today programme decide they want to do something, it's because it's acceptable <laughs> all of a sudden. So I think the timing was pretty good. And crucially, the entries were amazing, you know such a mix of established players like the BBC and Absolute and, and the big commercial radio players, newspapers like The Guardian and The Times and uh, New Statesman, you know, and periodicals. And then this huge tranche of independence, you know, bedroom producers, comedians, musicians, celebs working off their own back, sort of creating things to take on the big boys, which I just, it's just, that in itself feels like a great story. And it was just a real privilege to be able to to host it. Do you think organising those awards helps your business? Like looking at it from that, other than the fact that, you know, you're clearly passionate about the industry and it, it would have been a good thing to be involved with. Can you see that it directly helps you? Because um, probably it's quite tricky for your own shows to win it. That might feel awkward. Well, so. yeah, I, so I couldn't enter anything last year. It was it would have been, I mean, we, we would have yeah. made sure that it feels it's all beyond reproach. So um, making sure that there wasn't any conflict of interest was really important. I think, yeah, it is tricky because my role generally is to stay in the background of shows you know like you don't hear me on mic I try and write in the voice of our presenters you know and it was kind of the same with the podcast awards except I suppose that like the media show the media podcast and media talk it just affords you an opportunity to meet people so there are people um, I've met now at the BBC who are specifically to do with podcasting and, you know, the, the networks like ACAST and Audio Boom that I didn't really have much contact with before, including, you know, the, the very elusive um, staff at Apple, you know, and those are really great contacts to have. So I think, again, it, it, just in terms of the networking opportunities, it's really good. But I think above that, everyone now has that opportunity because if you come to the night, if you if you get nominated or if you just buy a ticket, you... You have the opportunity to go and meet the person from Apple, the person from Acast, even if you don't do a podcast now or you just want to get a bit more publicity for the one you've had for years. The Podcast Awards doesn't just open the doors for me or Matt or anyone. It opens the doors to everyone. And I think that's getting everyone in the same room together is is kind of beneficial for all of us. It's like you organise the meetup to end all meetups. Yeah. So to bring it back from like talking to all the, the the big people in your industry to talking to the small people within your house, how how does work balance <laughs> with with being a, a dad and and a, a husband? I mean, I think partly because I've always been freelance, I've quite enjoyed the opportunity to mix it up a little bit and to have the occasional day off in order to do something with family or see friends or whatever and I suppose pre-family you know it that meant I could work at weekends if needs be and whatever and I think now it's flipped the other way and I'm quite strict about you know trying not to work evenings or weekends but crucially the other thing is you know because I've got this great group of freelancers that I work with you know I I took the decision to go down to four days a week in order to um, spend more time with my daughter. And because of the fact that I work from home, you know, maybe a couple of days a week anyway, I feel like I've got the balance quite good. I mean, you know, it, it's uh, it's, a, it's a really good place to be in. I feel like it's a real privilege to be in it. And it's not through some sacrifice in the sense that you do have to turn down some work or, uh, you know, or find someone to do it that uh, and do it at cost. But ultimately, it just feels a lot better to be in that situation, I think. 
How do you cope with working from home? Do you have like a separate room to do it in or? Yes, I'm speaking to you from it now. It's uh, just a little a little office. Very impressed. Uh, I can't hear any screaming or... <laughs> She's asleep. She's asleep in the <laughs> room. Let's see, let's see how it goes for the rest of it. Um, this isn't my day off today, I hasten to add. My wife is also in the house, I should say. It's not me <laughs> sneaking in an interview while she sleeps. Now, I always do this thing where I ask for three facts about yourself. Make two true, one a lie, and let me figure out the lie. So what have you got for me? Okay, number one, I had a short-lived career as a treasure hunt writer. Number two, our family dog is called Zaphod. And uh, number three, I can't burp. <laughs> Try that out. You were a treasure hunt writer. What? As, uh, I'm presuming not for Annika Rice. Or no, TV. way before my time. Um, way before we Exactly, because yeah. you're, you're far too young. So what, for like a newspaper, for a radio, like treasure hunt? For like, um, uh, like team building companies, uh, you know, sort of white T-shirts and black trousers running into creative companies or accountants or whatever and getting them to run around London or wherever you happen to be. That sort of thing. But writing clues. Your dog is called Savod. Zaphod. Why? Uh, well, uh, Zaphod Beeblebrox is the character in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is my favourite. Uh, I suppose it's the thing that got me into radio in the first place it just felt like a very kid-friendly weird name so we named him Zaphod and you can't burp no it's weird actually this Chris it's been it's been taken like 30 37 years for me to really well not that I really thought about it for the first few but like I I suddenly thought I wonder if anyone else can't burp and then there was a whole BuzzFeed <laughs> article about it I saw over Christmas so it's, there are other people what? like me is there like a medical explanation? Is this some sort of superpower? Like, what's the? I d- I don't think they're spending too much money or time <laughs> at universities looking at this kind of thing. It's not a major problem. It's just you know, just avoid gassy drinks. So, no, but nah. But there's a thing: avoiding gassy drinks would make me perhaps not burp. But even if you drank a gassy drink, you would not burp. Yeah, no, no, can't do it. Can't you physically it. can't force no, no, yourself to no, burp. Id- no idea how you do it. No idea. Oh, the tragedy. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, if you never could, what do you miss, really? I'd be interested to know how many of your listeners can't burp. If it's true. I was going to say, this is the thing. <laughs> so you've mentioned BuzzFeed, so it could be that you just read it in BuzzFeed and thought, oh, that... Treasure- you see, Treasure Hunt sounded so... You came in so quickly with your explanation of what the heck that was. Your dog name sounds entirely believable. It's a cute. I've never heard of anybody not being able to burp. You you can burp. You burp like a tree. You can burp the alphabet. You are the king of burpers. You can burp. Can I act? No, I can't. I can't. I'm surprised. Ah! I'm surprised you're taunting me with it. To be honest, Steve. <laughs> well, do you know what? That that makes you the ultimate gentleman. Uh, <laughs> it does. Uh, it does. It really is. Well done. It's a super smooth producer because of that. Because you know. <laughs> For, yeah. Forever, aren't they? Forever burping and farting. <laughs> so which is the lie? Mm. Not the dog. Yeah, the dog. We don't have a dog. Aww. Don't even have a dog. Now, there's the real tragedy. He was such a lovely dog, and I can't believe you got rid of him <laughs> I know. so quickly. Well done. Now, if you could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance, what would that be? Mm. 
it's hang on in there, which sounds very much like that cat poster. But what I think I mean is that at the start of your career, you don't really have any contacts. And so that's the reason you're not getting any work is the lack of contacts. And the more people you meet, the more chance you have of working with them in the future. So just keep meeting people and it will all work out. Nice. Yeah. It's all the people you've met. And all the time that you have hoovered up the metaphorical sawdust. Yes, that has indeed. Made a difference. Matt, thank you so much. Find out everything that Matt is up to, links through to the podcast and also Ollie's episode that I mentioned earlier on, beingfreelance.com. While you're there, check out the vlog, of course, and also sign up for the mailing list. And Matt, thank you so much. It's been really great to chat to you and all the best being freelance. Thank you very much, Steve. So there we go, there's Matt, he was nice. And by the way, we mentioned the podcasting awards in that conversation and entries are open now, I noticed this week. So if you're listening to this as it goes out, which is February and I think they don't close until March, then if you have a podcast, then it's worth checking out. It's the British Podcast Awards. Unfortunately, I don't think there is a category that suits this podcast where we all try to help each other and we learn from each other and we share each other's stories that doesn't seem to be a category (laughs) which is really annoying but there you go but yeah it's uh it's a really good event and um if you have a podcast worth thinking about i'll put a link anyway in the show notes at beingfreelance.com okay you have a great week being freelance